Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. to the New Testament yet, <laughs> but we're in that section of the Old Testament where uh, things are dark. This is probably the darkest uh, chapter out of all the chapters we'll read. It's the uh, the time where Israel, actually Judah to the south, ends up going into exile because of, of their sin. But there's, there's a genius to the story, I think, uh, in the way it's laid out, much like scripture, because we read these stories and we realize that there's this longing for good news, right? I mean, it seems like the last 10 weeks, it's been the same story. It's been uh, leaders over Israel that have been unrighteous, and then the people go into trouble, and then they repent, and they ask God for forgiveness, and God sets them on the right course again, and then they do it all over again. Just failure after failure after failure, forgiveness after forgiveness, but it, the cycle continues. And this morning we come to the end in some ways of that cycle. I think they long for things to change. They wanted hope that things would be different, but they couldn't make, muster that change on their own part. Their righteousness wasn't going to make Israel what it needed to be. And as much as I want to judge Israel for their continued cycle of sin and forgiveness and being useful to God again, it seems like it's, they sin, God forgave them, and now God can use Israel in their forgiveness. That's my story too, and it's probably yours as well, right? That as frustrated or as whatever stones we want to throw at Israel, I can say the same story is, is mine. Colin sinned, but God forgave Colin, and God used that forgiveness to be able to use Colin again. And if you're longing for something new in your life, maybe it seems like the same cycle is there or the same frustrations, I want to assure you that good news is going to come in a few weeks as we get to the story of Jesus. But even in this story, as dark as it gets, it ends on a note of hope for Israel. I want to pray as we open our time in the story this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who gives us hope, who showed us what abundant life truly looks like. We want to be a church that inspires people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that your son's way of life, his teaching, is the best way we could possibly live our lives. And God, uh, our lives don't always show that we believe that fully. And so God, I pray today, whatever you need to do in our, our lives, our hearts, whatever you need to do in our relationships and our marriages with our children, that you would do those things, God, that your spirit would revive us, would restore us, would reconcile us, and would give us hope again for the days ahead. I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, Israel has had its uh, share of dark moments, as we've talked about in the story so far, but this week it gets darker. And chapter 17 of the story covers several kings in the life of Judah. If you remember, Solomon uh, was over Israel as they were all one united uh, nation. But after Solomon, there's a divided kingdom. There's Israel to the north and there's Judah to the south. Israel at this point has already been exiled to Assyria. And as we read today, uh, we read about the kings to the south and the destruction that comes to Jerusalem. And the story begins with a guy named Manasseh, King Manasseh. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, the words will also be on the screen. But I encourage you, if you want to open with me to 2 Kings chapter 21, we're going to be going all over the Bible this morning. So these, you may want to jot down some of these scriptures and come back to them later uh, if you don't have time to turn to them right now. But again, we'll have the words on the screen, on your screen online as well this morning. Uh, so this is the story of King Manasseh in 2 Kings uh, chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hevzebah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the king before him, his dad, was King Hezekiah, and he was one of the good kings in Judah. He tore down the high places of the foreign gods. He was the one who led them away from idolatry and back to worship of their God. But the son isn't like the father, as we see so many times. When there's a righteous king, the next doesn't follow in that line. And so how do you know it's an evil king? Well, this, these are the things that Manasseh did. He built back those altars and Asherah poles. He consulted spiritists and diviners, but maybe the darkest point comes as I read at the beginning of verse six. Let me read it again. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Now, if you can remember back earlier as this year, as we were walking through this story, we talked about Abraham and Abraham was the father of many nations. Abraham was the one that God had called to go and, and, and to start a new nation, to go to a land that God would give to Israel. And in that story, Abraham comes to the scene where God calls on him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. This is in Genesis 22, one of the most troubling chapters in all of scripture. Now, what's interesting about this story is that this is normal for those days in, a, in the ancient Near East. Religions around that time, they were seen as angry gods who didn't look well on the humans that were around them, uh, that they had created or that showed up on the earth. And so these gods would demand sacrifices in order to appease them for the, the hatred they had for these humans on the earth. And so how it works with the sacrificial system is you make a sacrifice. Maybe you sacrifice part of your crop or part of maybe a, an animal that you've raised up. But eventually, as things go on, that escalates because you have to continue to appease them more and more. And eventually you give the greatest gift you could possibly give, which in those days was your firstborn son. And in that story, uh, we got to realize that Abraham grew up in a, a, a household that worshiped other gods. His dad, as Jewish tradition tells us, was an idol maker. So he grew up around all of that and that was normal. Now, the shocking part of Genesis 22 
isn't that Abraham willingly goes up on a mountain to sacrifice his son in those days. All of the gods in that time period did that sort of thing. The shocking part of Genesis 22 is that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, doesn't end up demanding child sacrifice. He provides a ram instead of Abraham sacrificing his own child. And later on in the law, God clearly tells the people of Israel, look, no matter what you do, sacrificing your children is never something I'm going to ask of you. In fact, that's a detestable practice you should never get to. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, it says exactly that. It says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And yet here we are in Judah, King Manasseh, and we read that's exactly what he's done. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. This is a dark time in Judah, and God is fed up with it. Listen to what he says in 2 Kings as we go back there to verse 10 about the days ahead for Israel. Again, 2 Kings 21, verse 10. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes down a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. And so Manasseh's reign ends and the next one is a guy named Amon and he only reigns for two years before he's assassinated. There is trouble in Israel and it felt hopeless. Since the days of the judges, we've seen this same cycle. Occasionally they'll rally for a generation with righteousness as Hezekiah did, but the next generation can't seem to continue this religious nation that God wanted them to become. See, God had originally picked Israel as a nation. He set apart to live differently than the nations around them. They were to be a contrast community. They were to live out the law and the law was intended to show them how to live. So the nations around them would say, who is the God who commands people to live like this? This is a different kind of nation. They're unique. And God wanted them to cause wonder in the nations around them to see the true God. But these are dark days for Israel, dark days. And it's going to get even darker. Now, when we think back in our nation's history about days of darkness, days that remind us of moments, you may think back to December 7, 1941, or November 22nd, 1963 here in, in Dallas, or, or, or September 11 of 2001. When I say those dates, you don't remember what happened probably the day before those dates, but you can remember exactly what it felt like. You can remember the darkness, the wondering of, are things going to be any better? How bad is this going to get? The images are still in your mind or the newspaper clippings that you've seen of those times before you were born. And just a mention of those dates sends us places. It causes us to feel things. And, and for Israel, their date they always remembered was 586 B.C. Now, for the northern part, for Israel, it was 722 B.C. That was the day when Assyria came in and and basically took them hostage as slaves and exiles to Assyria. They were overtaken in the north. But in 2 Chronicles 36, we see the writing on the wall that the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah is inevitable. This is what it says, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. 
The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. That last line gets me. It's like God was trying to find a remedy, was trying to find a fix, was trying over and over again to give them second chances. But in the end, he says, this can't be fixed. There is no remedy to fix this. And sure enough, in 586 BC, it comes to pass. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem for two years. But in 586, the destruction takes place. It's horrific. He strikes at the heart of Jerusalem and its most prominent buildings and structures. Jeremiah 52 tells the story of what happened that day in Jerusalem. Again, Jeremiah 52, verse 4. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of Zedekiah. And then drop down to verse 12. We read about two years later. On the tenth month of the fifth month, tenth day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. The city walls have crumbled. You remember years ago in Jericho, right? There was this marching around the city and there was a hope that the walls were going to come down. They had seen walls come down through the power of God and now their own walls are coming down around them. The temple of the Lord and the royal palace are set on fire. And the question for Israel after this is this, where do we worship when the temple of the Lord's gone? Where is God? Does God exist if if, if the temple's not here? Because if you remember back when the temple was built, when Solomon caused it uh, to, to be put up, the, the presence of the Lord descended on that place. His glory fell on the temple. And now the question is, is God not as powerful as the gods of the Babylonians? Is God still to be trusted? Does he hear our prayers? Is there hope for the future? Now, when we come to stories like these, I think it's important for us to read these, not as just a historical lesson from the past, but to read them as if they're letters and prophecies for us to hear how God might dissect our hearts in this time as well. And so often, if we align ourselves with the prophets and kind of say, yeah, you go tell them, Jeremiah, you go tell them, Ezekiel, it's easy to think we're the righteous ones and we're condemning all the rest who need a word of challenge. But just this morning for a few minutes, I want to ask you to see yourselves in the role of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I'll tell you a little bit about them so that you can kind of put yourself in their shoes. But imagine being the one that God delivers a message to you on behalf of Jerusalem and Judah. And it's words of destruction. There's words of hope in there as well. But just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Ezekiel, just a word about him. He has a whole book, a lot of chapters. There's a lot there if you try to read it. But Ezekiel's a prophet of God who ministers in Babylon to the exiles who've been pulled away from Jerusalem. So imagine after this destruction happens, we're going to read next week the story of Daniel. And we're going to read about the Babylonian exile. But in that period, right, here's Babylon and, and the people are gone there. And so Ezekiel is the prophet who goes with those exiles and is there to deliver words of hope and words of challenge, trying to explain this is why you're in the situation you're in. And so it's Ezekiel's job to hear from God and to deliver to them the word about why they're in the situation they're in and to give them hope. But Jeremiah is in a different 
place. Jeremiah has a whole book as well, and his prophecy comes as he's in Jerusalem. He's there before the fall, during the fall, and after the fall. And he remains there in order to deliver a word to God's people to explain why the invasions happened in Jerusalem. So again, Ezekiel's prophesying to the exiles who are in Babylon, and Jeremiah's prophesying to the people of God who are still in Jerusalem, the small number. This is the message that they're called to deliver by God. This is the message that Ezekiel is called to deliver. This is Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 23. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. Say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So why is God bringing destruction on Jerusalem? Ezekiel says, it's because you profane the name of God. You bore the name of God. You were God's people in the world. And this is how you lived. And the nations are not seeing the God behind it. This has been God's purpose since Genesis 12. He he told Abram, I want you, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you so that all nations on the earth, all peoples can be blessed through you. But his people haven't been living up to his name. Their idolatry has led to immorality and injustice of all kinds. And God isn't going to let them run around with his name on doing the detestable things they've done. He's not going to let them wave a Jesus flag and do the stuff they've been doing with people assuming that that's who Jesus is. God is acting for his name and his glory. But Ezekiel isn't just speaking to deliver doom. Ezekiel has a word of hope that I think is important for us to hear this morning because this has been dark so far, but things are going to make a turn. And he's trying to tell these exiles who are in Babylon, there is a future and a hope for you. And this is what it is. This is Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 24 and following. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I will cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. There's hope for Israel. The hard news is he's delivering this to exiles who are not going to be the ones to get to see the ruins rebuilt. 
This is going to be for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. This is 70 years in the future, as we'll study next week, that Jeremiah says that you're going to finally be allowed to come back home. But there's hope. And what is the hope? And we need to hear this this morning as well. In the midst of maybe the dark season that we're in or the challenges that we're facing, God promises, I'm going to cleanse you from your sins. We'll get to that in a few weeks, how he'll choose to do that. God promises to settle them back in their towns, to rebuild the ruins, that the wall of Jerusalem is going to be restored. But that isn't even the best news. God promises, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you, which we're going to read about in Acts later on in the story, right? About the Holy Spirit who descends on the church. And that promise isn't just good news for that group of people. It's good news for us. Amen? Because we're able to receive that promise. Now, as we close today, I want to go to one more passage in the New Testament because this is a time of discipline for Israel. God is disciplining them for the sake of his name and for his glory, but for a future that he wants to continue to give his people, for relationship to be restored among uh, his people and him. So the writer speaks to the discipline God uses to correct his children. And this is uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 12. As we think about Israel, the same is true for us, that God still disciplines his children, but it is for their good. Listen to the writer of Hebrews describe the discipline of God. Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Yesterday, I was at my daughter's basketball game and um, she's nine years old, so she's just picking up the game and they're having a good time out there. They've gone up to the 10-foot goal, which I'll tell you is a real challenge. <laughs> it's an interesting brand of basketball right now. But, but on the court, she was struggling yesterday. And her coach, I mean, one, two, three times was yelling at her. And she's receiving this in front of everybody on the court. And I'm feeling for her as she's kind of going through this, you know, hoping she'll get the next uh, ball and pass it better than she had before. And we get in the car after the game, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sit with her in the midst of their team loss, but maybe more importantly, her kind of feeling of, of guilt and the part she played in it and, and feeling embarrassed in front of everyone else for the coach saying what she'd said. And, and I tried to tell Addison, look, if your coach didn't see promise in you, your coach wouldn't care enough to correct you. And I know it's hard to receive that in front of everyone. And I know at times you'd rather just sit the bench than receive that kind of treatment. But the reality is your coach sees something in you, which is why she's trying to get you to get a better place. We can work on these skills. We can get better. We can have more confidence next game if we go at it and we practice and we train. But I don't want you to take this discipline as if it's hatred. It's actually someone who sees something in you. And I don't know if she got that message yesterday. And there are times I wonder and am challenged if I believe those things myself about my own life. But I want you to hear this out of Hebrews 12 for us today. The discipline of the Lord is for our good. 
The consequences from our sin are so that we might be brought back to repentance so that we can restore relationship with God. Right now, you may be walking through a season where challenges are coming your way and you're wondering, has this happened because of something I failed to do? Sometimes it's not our fault. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. But there are times where the discipline of God is a hand that is for our good. So I want you to reflect this week on that idea because Israel experienced discipline so that God's glory could be brought forth. And it wasn't fun and it wasn't what they would have desired. But it provided an opportunity for God to restore the world through Jesus who would come and continue that through this line. There was hope for the future. And in your season right now, if you're under the discipline of God, if maybe this is a time of repentance and turning back for you, I want to let you know that God doesn't punish you for, uh, for your harm. But for your good, God desires the best. Jesus comes so that we can have an abundant life. And so I hope that we'll listen to that as, as I hope my daughter will listen to that in the same way as my kids, that as I try to point them in the right way, a good father, a good mother disciplines their children. And the same is true for us as the children of God. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, we, we thank you for the challenge of a passage like this, a reminder that things can get very dark and difficult. And I know those exiles wondered in the midst of all that, where is, where is God? Has he been defeated? Is he off his throne? Where, why is Jerusalem going through this? Why are we experiencing being away from home? It is a dark moment for Israel. And God, for us over this last year, I know that there are people that have felt that same experience, God, just grief after grief, loss of job, moves, just grief and a longing for you to move and, and to do things that we pray that you would do. God, we continue to pray for that. We pray for the healing of your people, the healing of, of this nation and around the world, God, from this pandemic and from all of the unrest and challenges we're facing. But God, we know sometimes it's for our good that these things happen. And you take those things and you use them to form us more into your character so that we can put on display better as your church what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so I pray this morning, God, that we would receive whatever discipline is actually the discipline you're trying to give. And that we would make a turn, God, to realize that you want things for our good, not for our harm. That you want us to live an abundant life. And that's why you've given us your law and that's why you correct us. So this morning, God, as a church, I pray whatever we need to be corrected of, that we would get on the right path together. And God, as individuals, that we would receive it not in bitterness, but we would realize that it's out of your love that you set us back on the right course. So we receive that, God, this week and we want to move into your healing and your wholeness. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Be standing now, if you would, as we close our time this morning. I'm grateful for you uh, being here with us today and sitting through a passage like this. This is not my favorite sermon to deliver. But it is a reminder for us that in the darkest of times, God still has a hope and a future for us. And that even under the discipline of God, it's not that God has abandoned us, that it is God who wants to move with us into relationship. So this week, I pray uh, the blessings of God over you. Go in peace today. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.